And if you're feeling really ambitious and maybe have a paper copy of the Bible, uh, you could also turn to Matthew chapter 14. We'll be there uh, for the bulk of the lesson this morning, Hebrews 12 and Matthew chapter 14. So let me start with a question. We've been in this series on faith, and we've studied through a lot of Hebrews chapter 11, and last week and this week we're, we're slowing down on the early parts of Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, so let me just ask you this question to get your thoughts going. Who's your favorite Bible character? I don't know what you would say. Maybe you've been asked that before. Maybe you know a name. So on the count of three, everybody just say the name of your favorite Bible character. Let's try this. One, two, three. All I heard was Simon of Cyrene. Is that what you said, Adam? Okay, you're closest, so I heard yours. Uh, uh, so I don't know what you said, what name you said, but I heard a lot of different names out there. Maybe you've been asked that question before, who's your favorite Bible character? Maybe you've put some thought into it. Maybe you will. Maybe you said someone from the book of Genesis. There's a lot of great Bible characters like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, maybe even Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, or maybe you move beyond the book of Genesis and you look at someone like Moses, or maybe into the book of Joshua, you look at someone like Rahab, or then you keep going and you have famous names like David and Samson and Gideon and Barak, and there's all of these great names from the Old Testament that you could have possibly said. But if you were to ask me, because you didn't, I asked you, so now you ask me, who's your favorite Bible character? And I'll give you the right answer. You know what the right answer is? Jesus, okay? When you're in church or Bible class, somebody asks you a question like that, just say Jesus and you're normally right. But I, I mean that. Jesus is my favorite Bible character. So if you feel like you were tricked just now, I'm sorry. But, uh, but I will tell you that my answer is the right one. When I, when I was in my early 20s, I'm around college age, I used to tell people the only reason that I'm a Christian is because of Jesus. To which usually people would respond and say, well, duh, the only reason anybody is a Christian is because of Jesus. But what I meant by that, if I had a chance to explain myself, was as I went through a period, a season of doubt and spiritual numbness, I, I talked about this last month as we started this series, went through a time period where I had to really dig deep and, and really do some self-reflection on my own life and whether or not I really believe all of this. And I struggled with the Old Testament. I struggled with what I was reading in the Old Testament. I struggled with some things about church. I struggled with Christian behavior. I struggled with all sorts of doubts. But the one thing that kept me anchored through that season of doubt was Jesus. There was something about the life and the teachings of Jesus that kept me anchored. I was like infatuated with Jesus. I wanted to know more about Jesus. And if that's all I had, that was fine with me. I spent a lot of time in the Gospels. I spent a lot of time focusing on Jesus. And because of that, through that relationship with Jesus, what that did for me as time went on is it kind of relaunched me back into the Old Testament. I started re reading Genesis and all these characters and all these stories and the prophets from the Old Testament, but now I was reading it through the lens of Jesus. I looked at people and I was able to view them through the lens of Jesus. I, I even had a, a renewed sense of love for the church because of Jesus. So my journey in faith really was anchored in 
what I believed and what I was reading and what I saw of Jesus Christ, and that launched me into a whole different part of my life. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is our really our main text. We focused on verse 1 last week, which says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That's what we focused on last Sunday morning. And our focus this morning is on Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2 is what I want to focus on for this morning, and that very first line, if you're reading an NIV or another text, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The New Revised Standard Version says, looking to Jesus. So you have all these names that we've looked at in Hebrews 11, Moses and Abraham and David and all the names I mentioned at the beginning. And the culmination of the list, the list all comes to a head with Jesus. Jesus is the greatest one of them all. In fact, the Hebrew writer says he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Jesus. And we're told to fix our eyes on him. Look to him. Uh, a few months ago in a sermon in April, I, I told you about how I had to stay up all night long and my son Christian had to get a, a test done on his brain called an EEG. And so we had to wake him up at three in the morning and keep him awake so he'd fall asleep during the test and took him to the hospital, got checked in, uh, got back into the room. They put all these electrodes on his head, as you see in the picture. And, and the whole thing took forever. And the whole time I felt terrible for my son because it just felt like sleep deprived and he's having to be still. And, and then we had to get him to sleep so they could do the test while he was asleep. So they dimmed the lights and I had to tell him a story. So the only thing I could think of was the Lion King. So I told him the entire Lion King story and he finally fell asleep. And then so I thought, okay, we're finally doing this test. And about 30 minutes later, the technician said, okay, wake him up. That part of the test is over with. I was like, you kidding me? We woke him up at 3 in the morning and did all this, and boom, it's over just like that? And he said, the last part of the test, though, is usually the worst part. He said, we're going to put a light over his eyes, and we're going to try to simulate a seizure while we have him hooked up. So for three minutes, we need him to sit still and stare into this light. And he said, the light's pretty extreme, and it's going to blink, and it's going to be hard to look at, but we need him to sit still and look at this light. And so for the worst part of the test, for three minutes, I watched my son just sit there like this as this light was just boom, 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 and then stop and do it over and over again for three straight minutes. And he did great. He didn't throw a fit. He didn't try to get off the table. He didn't cry. He didn't rip those things off his head. He persevered through the test. But as I watched him do this, and as I read Hebrews 12 too, fix our eyes on Jesus, I had this picture in my mind of him sitting there looking into the light. And I thought, how do we look at something? How do we keep our eyes focused on something that can be hard to look at? And what I mean by that is we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, but doing that, if we're really fixing our eyes on Jesus, that's not always the easiest thing to do. Because Jesus teaches us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. Well, that's not easy to do. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. 
How do you focus your eyes on that? Jesus tells us to forgive others and to pray for those who persecute you. Sometimes it's hard to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus tells us to get the plank out of our own eye first before we try to get the speck of sawdust out of someone else's eye. It's hard to fix our eyes and focus our lives towards those teachings. Following Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus isn't always easy to do. And if you fix your eyes on Jesus for long enough, there's a really good chance that he is going to cause you to turn and look inwardly and do some self-reflection and kind of do some purging of the things that are in you that are not Christ-like, and that's not easy to do either. The next text I want to look at is Matthew chapter 14. This is the story of Peter walking on water, so I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler to begin with. It's the first thing I thought of when I thought of Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus or fixing your eyes on Jesus. But what I want to do is just read through uh, Matthew 14, 22 through 33, and I'm going to stop and comment on a few things along the way. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. If we just pause right there in verse 23, that gives us a glimpse of what Jesus focused on in his life and ministry. He's with people, he's helping people, and I've mentioned this before, but his rhythm of life is he needs that alone time, that solitude, that silence, that prayer time with God. So he goes by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. So Jesus decides, well, they're pretty far away, I'll just walk on water to catch up with them. My whole life when I've read this story, I thought, well, that's strange. Jesus doesn't fly through the air. There's a lot of things that Jesus doesn't do to abuse his power. So what's he doing here? Why is he walking on water? Uh, In Mark's account of this story, in Mark chapter 6, and verse 48, Mark says that he intended to pass them by. So I always thought, well, maybe he was just trying to sneak past them and meet them on the other side. But the Greek word that Mark uses in Mark 6, 48 is this word, parakomai, which if you're looking at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, this Greek word parakomai is used in the Old Testament to refer to a theophany, which I know that sounds like a big theological word, but really what a theophany is is just an appearance of God. So if you think about Moses at the burning bush, that's a theophany. God is revealing himself to Moses. When, Moses, when God reveals himself to Elijah, that's a theophany. So parakomai, when Jesus is about to pass them by, he's not just doing a cool magic trick, walking on water. He's not trying to beat them to the other side. Jesus is revealing part of his glory to his disciples, the light that is within him. Because only God can do that. Only God can control the sea like that. So Jesus is walking on water, and and Matthew doesn't give us that parakomai, so that's why I used Mark. We'll pick back up, though, in Matthew 14, verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This is one of the things I love about Peter. 
Usually he's the one to speak up. But here, he's not just being impulsive. It seems like Peter uh, is actually being wise. Instead of just jumping out of the boat and running out in the water, he first says, if it's you, call me. So he's trying to use some spiritual discernment here. What Peter wants to know is, is this an authentic call from God? Is this really the voice of Jesus that I'm hearing? So he says, if it's you, then tell me to come to you. So what does Jesus say in verse 29? He says, come. Just like he does when he calls the disciples originally, come, follow me. He says to Peter, come. And so Peter, in verse 29, got out of the boat, started walking on water, and came towards Jesus. That's a heavy verse. Peter takes some major steps there. First of all, it says Peter's walking on water. And other than Jesus, I believe, to my knowledge, Peter is the only other human being to have ever walked on water. That's a pretty big deal. But to get to that place, he had to hear the call from Jesus. He had to be willing to get out of the boat, and he had to be willing to let go of the boat. This is such an important step in faith history. John Ortberg wrote a book called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And one of the things he's pointing to is Peter overcame some major fears here. He stepped out of the boat, and then he was willing to let go of the boat. And he starts walking on water, and all of that seems amazing. But what we really know Peter for in this story is in verse 30 it says, But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I think it's interesting. For one, they, they see Jesus' glory. You, truly you are the Son of God, because only God can walk on water. He, that's a theophany. He's revealed himself to his disciples. But he tells Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In my opinion, Peter doesn't have much doubt. In my opinion, Peter does what none of the other disciples were willing to do. Peter's willing to walk on water. But when he starts to sink, Jesus refers to that as doubt and of little faith. As long as Peter focused on Jesus, he was doing just fine. He was walking towards him. He was doing the impossible but as soon as Peter noticed the wind, as soon as Peter noticed the storm around him and what was actually happening, and he took his focus off of Jesus, that's when he started to sink. This is a picture of a guy named John Aldridge. And for years, John Aldridge and his partner, his fishing buddy, a guy named Anthony, twice a week they would take two overnight trips out of the Atlantic Ocean off of Long Island, and they would fish overnight for lobster and things like that. And that was just a part of their normal routine until one night. It was in 2013, summertime. They went out for their routine trip overnight. Anthony was asleep below the deck. John, it was his turn to get up in the middle of the night and try to open the hatch and start to get things ready for the morning. But as he was trying to open the hatch, it wasn't opening, so he was pulling with all of his force, and the handle broke. And as the handle broke, his body shot him backwards out of the boat, and into the ocean. So the middle of the night, John Aldridge is floating around in the ocean, 
by himself as the boat is slowly floating away from him. And he's yelling at the top of his lungs for his friend Anthony, who's sound asleep and can't hear him over the diesel engine. And so there he is, left by himself, no floating device, nothing to help him, all alone in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of the night. Well, the next morning, Anthony wakes up. Where's John? My, my buddy, my partner, is gone. He's gone overboard. He's gone missing. And by this time, the boat had floated far away. So Anthony calls the Coast Guard and said that his partner has gone overboard and has no idea where he is. They send out this massive search for him. But what they told Anthony was, it's not looking good. Usually people don't survive for that long with nothing keeping them afloat out in the middle of the ocean. So there's a chance we're not going to find him. There's a chance he may have drowned by now. So 18 hours they searched for John Aldridge, and then they found him. I watched the rescue video earlier this week. I watched as the helicopter lowered the basket to him. He gets in the basket, and they pull him up. And as they're pulling him up, you see, as you see in this picture, he was holding these two green rubber boots. He said that these green rubber boots used to uh, cause other fishermen to make fun of him because they weren't the typical kind of boots, I guess, that the fishermen wore in that part of the world. And so everybody knew him as those goofy-looking green rubber boots that he wore. But he said that when he was thrust out into the ocean and left by himself, and he knew he's got to tread water, the first thing he started to do was to shed some of his clothes to get some of the weight off. He said he took his boots off, and they came right up to the surface. And he realized they were buoyant. So he grabbed them and he put them under his arms, and for the next 18 hours, those green boots that people used to make fun of him for wearing, those became like a makeshift floating device for him. And those green rubber boots saved his life. Those green rubber boots helped keep him afloat. And as long as he kept them tight and close to him, he was going to be okay. And eventually he was rescued. Uh, they say that if you find his dad today and you lift up the sleeve of his arm, you find those green rubber boots tattooed onto his dad's arm because he knows those green rubber boots are the reason that his son is still alive today. But as I read that story, I thought about Peter. And it's almost like Jesus is those green rubber boots. As long as Peter keeps tight, keeps close with the very thing that's keeping him afloat, he's doing okay. But if he lets go of Jesus, if he looks to the storm, if he gets focused on other things, that's when Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You lost your focus. You let go of the very thing that was keeping you afloat. So for us, as followers of Jesus, what do we hold on to when life throws its storms at us? And it will. Last week we looked at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. And if you just span over the end of Hebrews 11, oh man, all the faithful people and all the things that they went through. Fed to lions, sawn in two, left as homeless and destitute and living in holes in the ground and in caves. All these storms of life that they had to go through that basically were promised there's going to be pain in life, there's going to be difficult times, times of confusion, times of doubt. What do you hold on to or how do you hold on to your faith focused on Jesus? How do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus through the ups and downs of life? Well, as we've gone through the sermon series, there's been a few things that I've mentioned along the way that I think Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 are really trying to 
highlight for us. One of those words is this word surrounded. I told you in the very first sermon on Hebrews 11 that I think one of the main points of all these names, these by faith, by faith, by faith, one of the main points for us is if we want to grow in our faith and not stagnate and if we want to be ever growing towards Christ, then we need to walk with the faithful. In Hebrews 12, 1, it says we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So we need to surround ourselves with people who really believe. Not just people who say they believe, but people who are living it out. If you want to keep your faith focused on Christ, if you want to fix your eyes on Jesus, you have to surround yourself with other people who are doing the same thing. This word presence was important when we looked at the Moses story. When Moses is called by God in Exodus 3 and 4, the promise that God gives to Moses is, I will be with you. You have the gift of my presence. It's the same promise that Jesus gives us today. I will be with you. So what are we doing to stay in the presence of God? How are we drawing near to God? And I liked what Paul, which you talked about this morning during your communion thoughts. And I actually had it in my notes that one of the ways that we stay focused on Jesus and we stay in the presence of God is we actually have to show up and worship with other faithful people. And that helps us keep our focus on Jesus. This word persevere is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and it's almost used synonymously with the word faith. We view our life, our faith journey, kind of like a long-distance race, and we persevere. We maintain our faith even through difficult times. How do we keep our focus on Jesus? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Well, every book that I read in preparation for this sermon and other sermons When people, when authors, when Christian authors talk about how do we keep our focus, how do we focus our minds on Jesus, almost everybody at some point says scripture memorization is incredibly important for that. So that's one of the things we try to do as a church is to challenge you to memorize scripture. And this isn't just some legalistic thing so we can check off how many scriptures we have memorized. The purpose of this is so that you soak in the Word of God, into your mind and into your heart. And currently, we're challenging you this year to memorize Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Another word I'll pop up here, how do we keep our focus on Jesus? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? I put this word reset. I was teaching an adult Bible class several years ago, about 25 to 30 adults in this class. It wasn't here at this church. It was at another church. And very quickly... The conversation grew into a pretty intense argument, which if you know me, that's not very comfortable for me to be a facilitator of while you have adults look like they're about to rip each other apart. And so I'm trying to calm things down, but I'm also getting confused because I'm like, I don't even know what you're arguing about at this point. And one of the guys in the class spoke up and he said, you know, in my mind, I have a reset button. And he said, when I get bogged down with doubts and confusion and and all the sin and all the, the things of this world that are thrown at me. And he said, when I get bogged down with all of that, I press my reset button in my mind. And he said, my reset button is, here's what I know. I know John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. 
I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I know Jesus died on a cross. I know Jesus resurrected. He said, that's my reset button. I'll press that button. And when I get too bogged down and too confused, that's what I do. And he said, that's what we need to do for this class today. And I was like, thank you. And everybody agreed. We agree that who Jesus, Jesus is who he says he is. So how do we keep our faith focused on Jesus? Well, there's a lot of things, and maybe just a few of these things listed will help you fix your eyes on Jesus, and maybe you're at a place where you just kind of need to press that reset button and just come back to Jesus. And it might be helpful for asking the question, if Hebrews 12.2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, it might be helpful to ask, well, what did Jesus fix his eyes on? What did Jesus look to? We could do a whole sermon series on that, but if we keep it in context of Hebrews 12 too, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him. For the joy that set before Him, He was able to endure the cross, scorning its shame or disregarding its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what did Jesus fix his eyes on? He fixed his eyes on the joy that was coming, the joy set before him. And because of that, he was able to endure anything. He was able to endure the cross. He was able to endure his friends, his disciples betraying him. He was able to endure all the antagonism from the religious leaders. He was able to endure the agony of the cross. He was able to endure death on a cross because of the joy set before him. I read a story about a preacher who said that there was a a lady in his church who constantly requested that when she dies, she wants to be buried with a fork in her hand. So one day the preacher said, why do you want to be buried with a fork in your hand? She said, every time that I've gone to some fancy dinner where somebody is serving me the food, and they come to take my plate, and they say, keep your fork, she says, that means the best is yet to come. That means that that we're not done yet, that something better is coming. So she said, when I'm buried, I want that fork in my hand because I want people to see that and to symbolize it's not over. This will not end in death. The best is yet to come. And for Jesus, that's what he focused on. He was able to endure anything for the joy set before him. So we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus. There's this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul writes these letters to this church in Corinth. And to give you a little bit of background of the church in Corinth, they were filled with drama and filled with all kinds of problems. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul said, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. And then in verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've been thinking about that verse all week as I prepared to study Hebrews 12.2. Paul tells this church in Corinth that my focus, my drive, my resolve was to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's almost like Paul saying, I have a reset button, and it's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I'm not going to get caught up in all your drama and all the problems. I'm going to help guide you in the right direction so that you can focus your faith on Jesus also. There's a guy named Parker Palmer. 
who wrote a book, and in this book he uses an example of farmers in the Midwest. And he said that, unfortunately, uh, when blizzards would come come on out of nowhere, that farmers would get lost in the blizzard because they couldn't even see the hand in front of them. And so they would just get lost in their field or coming from the barn to the house, and unfortunately, many of them died. Some of them very close to their house, didn't realize how close they were. So he said that the advice given was to tie a rope from the barn to the house, so that if a blizzard comes on and you're in the barn or you're out in the field and you can't see anything, instead of dying out in the field, grab a hold of that rope. And follow that rope, and it will lead you home. Even if you can't see where you're going, follow the rope, and it will lead you home. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, it's almost like Jesus is like that rope. If we hold on to the rope and stay close to the rope, which is Jesus, he will lead us home. It's like Jesus is like those green rubber boots. If we keep them tight, keep them close, and stay focused on what we need to focus on, We're going to stay afloat. We're going to be okay. Jesus is like that fork that symbolizes the best is yet to come. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This morning, if you've lost your focus on Jesus and you want to rededicate that, or if you want to learn more about who Jesus is and how to live a life focused on Him, if you want to know more about this joy that is set before us, we always have shepherds around the room who are willing to meet with you and pray with you, and and I'll be up front, and we have a shepherd up front with me. If you need to respond to the invitation, you can do so now while we stand in.